We're going to read Mark chapter uh, 14, verses 1 to 11. <clears throat> now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he is in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So just as a bit of a recap, you know, over the last few weeks, we've been going through this book of Mark for well, quite a while now, a lot of the year. And for the last little while, we've seen things ramping up between Jesus and those religious leaders. Jesus has been publicly calling them out. You know, he's warning the public not to be like the leaders. There's no more subtlety. He's not tiptoeing around anymore. Jesus is boldly criticizing them over and over again. And, you know, this energy is building towards something. You know, as, as readers, we, can, we see that this can't continue forever. It's got to go towards some kind of escalation. And now today we've read a bit about what's happening behind the scenes. You know, at first glance, it seems like a bit of an odd collection of verses. We've had a bit about the leaders plotting and scheming to arrest and kill Jesus. Then this beautiful passage of a woman anointing him with oil. And then we're talking about Judas betraying him again. It's a weird collection. Um, but as we saw again a few weeks ago, it's not the first time that Mark does something like this. Uh, many scholars believe he's doing something intentional in the way that he bundles these stories together. And if you remember, they called it a Mark and Sandwich. It's something that he does quite a few times, where he sort of tells one story, then he tells a seemingly unrelated story in the middle of another story, and then he goes back to the original one again. So if we look at today's reading with that in mind, that this is done intentionally, we notice something a little bit different. It gives a bit more context to the middle story and when you read it inside the wider story. So let's jump in. This first part. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. So this is, the, you know, this is our first slice of bread in the sandwich. The first part, this is focusing on the forces that are opposing Jesus. You know, we see here that they're preparing for their next move. You know, they've, they've had enough of Jesus calling them out. They're embarrassed to be talking with him in public. Now they officially plan to arrest him and kill him. And they specifically mention that they don't want to do it during the festival. You know, they're worried about the people rioting. And this was quite a valid concern. Um, there's actually been a number of, of riots and rebellions that w happened during the Passover time. You know, if you remember Passover, it's quite a politically charged event. When the, you know, the origins of it, they're remembering when God rescued them from their oppressors in Egypt. 
So every year they're celebrating, you know, God has rescued us and turned us into a great nation. And at this point in history, they're currently oppressed by the Romans. So it's quite a sort of tense time of year. Even the Romans had orders to, you know, try and behave as much as possible when they're controlling people at these events because there were many times where the Romans were too heavy-handed and that caused riots as well. So the leaders knew the risks of trying to arrest someone. You know, Jesus has just claimed to be the Messiah. He's marched in on a donkey. Everyone's yelling, Hosanna. They're believing he's here to rescue them from the Romans. That's not a great time to try and arrest or kill Jesus, someone who's claiming to be the Messiah and that so many people seem to be believing. The crowds were very interested in what Jesus had to say. They'd witnessed him debating the leaders intensely the last week. And it was quite clear that Jesus was winning those intellectual debates and he's proposing you know, morally superior teachings and he's, he's beating them at their own game in terms of understanding scripture. He was winning the hearts of the people. So yeah, not a great idea to re- arrest this guy publicly, especially at this time of the year when people are remembering the last time that they were delivered from their oppressive rulers and praying to God that it would happen again. So that's our first slice of bread in the sandwich. Now I'm going to jump to the end of the story the last bit of bread, which is that weird passage. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So we started with the, the priests and the teachers of the law scheming to arrest and kill Jesus, and we end with Judas, one of the twelve, one of the closest people to Jesus, who has come to them and agreed to betray him and help them with their plans. You know, this is great news for those people who are scheming and trying to kill Jesus. What started as you know, this kind of coming up with a plan, how can we make this happen, has developed into something that's now actually looking achievable. You know, these two short chunks that Mark shares, it gives us a glimpse behind the scenes into the plans of those people who are opposing Jesus. You know, there's this illusion that they're in control. They believe that they're sitting in ambush and that they are in control of the events to follow. You know, it's, it's like in the movies, you know, there's often a scene with the villain and he's, you know, he's got his evil laugh as he's cackling away at his plans that are, you know, he's so arrogant that his plans are foolproof. Well, you know, I don't know, Simpsons fans here, you know, Mr. Burns and he's scheming away, tapping his fingers. That's what we're seeing behind the scenes here. This is the story from the opposing point of view, looking like things are going their way. One of the things that really annoys me is when the story of Jesus' death is is presented in a way that focuses only on the tragedy of it. And and, and of course, it it is a tragedy, but there's a lot of films or retellings of this where it it seems like people are saying that Jesus was so close to doing what he came here to do, but he was blindsided last minute by Judas and the religious leaders, that these evil people outsmarted him, and it was their plan that succeeded. But that's not the case at all. Remember specifically they said, we can't arrest or kill him during the festival. It's too risky. And what ends up happening? I'm going to jump a bit to the end of the story, so sorry for spoilers if you don't know what happens. Um, But we read in John 13 that during the Passover meal, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Then later in verse 27, Jesus reveals that it's Judas, and he looks right at him, close enough to hand him a piece of bread, and he says, it's you who's going to betray me. You know, in, that, in that event, it's Judas who's the one who's surprised, not Jesus. You know, he says to him, what you're about to do, do it quickly. 
you know, Jesus wasn't blindsided by that betrayal. It was Judas. Jesus says, I know what you've been planning, and he's forcing his hand here. You know, Judas is in a bit of a predicament now. He can either, you know, run and tell these authorities that the timing's not ideal, but it's the only opportunity we've got. I know where he is. He's in a secret place with only a few people watching. He's either got that option or to just give up on it. He's never going to get an opportunity to get close to him in private again. So he's forcing his hand here. There's this illusion that the bad guys are in control, that all their preparation, their plotting and scheming, that it's all working according to their plan, but it's really not. Jesus uses their plans for evil and works them into his master plan of salvation. And now if we look at the meat in the sandwich, this middle story, that again, it seems quite unrelated to these two little bookends that we've read. But if we look at it in light of that outer story, it, it sort of brings a bit more spin to it. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke, it, she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Um, the Gospel of John gives us a bit more detail about this account, and, and he names that it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who anointed Jesus with the perfume. So Lazarus was at the table too, and Martha was serving, it says. And, you know, poor Mary gets a little bit of a bad reputation sometimes. You know, this account of Jesus being anointed with perfume, it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John. But in the book of Luke, there's a similar account where he's anointed with perfume, and they often get mashed together as the same event, but it's actually talking about a different occasion. In Luke chapter 7, we read, you know, Jesus is having dinner at the house of Simon the Pharisee, and he's being anointed by a sinful woman, it says, and she's not named. But this happens much earlier on in his ministry. He's still up in Galilee teaching, not down in Jerusalem like he is today. And in that book of Luke, the conversation is all around the fact that, you know, if Jesus was really a prophet, he wouldn't let the sinful woman near him if he really knew what she was like. There's no conversation about it being a waste of money, no conversation about being anointed for burial. The only other similarity is that it's in the house of someone called Simon and that he's being anointed with perfume. I and mean, this is one of these examples that critics of Christianity love to point out. You know, they say that the writers can't even get their stories straight. We've got these accounts that they, was it in Galilee, was it in Bethany? It's, it's too much of a coincidence for it to be two different events, they say. And I used to work with a guy who was like super critical of Christianity. Uh, we got along great, but he wouldn't waste any opportunity just to put a little dig in or, or bring up something about how many contradictions were in the Bible and how crazy some of our beliefs were. He was really militantly against it. and It was, it was actually a lot of fun and really great for my faith. But I, I remember this was actually, this was one of the examples that he, he mentioned to me. It, and he gave me this, he sent me a chart. We have like a little Teams chat and he sent it to me. And it was this really intimidating looking chart saying all the contradictions in the Bible. And it's got all these lines and quotes and it's, you know, I was early 20s at the time. And it was, it was a very intimidating thing. And then one, time, one night I started looking into it. It was all references. It was great. And as I looked into them, Half of them fell apart within about two seconds. They weren't contradictions at all. It was just someone kind of being lazy and relying on people being scared and just assuming, well, this guy said these contradictions, so maybe there is, maybe I'm an idiot for believing this. It relied on looking confident and overwhelming and hoping that no one would fact check it. And one thing that you discover, that pouring perfume or scented oils on someone was actually a very common thing to do in that part of the world. You know, it was an act of hospitality. 
um, you know, Jesus probably had people pouring perfume or oil on him hundreds of times that aren't recorded. It wasn't a particularly strange thing to do. The two events that are recorded are recorded because of the uniqueness of the conversations that surround those situations. You know, it's, it, they were living in a very hot part of the world, and 2,000 years ago, hygiene wasn't all that great. So if you invited someone over for a meal, they've probably had to walk a, a reasonable way on the hot sun, dirty roads. So it was quite normal to anoint someone with oil. Um, what we read in this example, of, you know, pouring a whole bottle on, that's pretty extravagant. Usually it was watered down. But it was an act of hospitality and potentially a little bit selfish on the part of the host not wanting their house to smell like travellers. But it was a very normal thing to do. And I want to quickly go off track um, just because that, I don't know, I think in some ways apologetics or people pointing out how being critical of the Bible and making you feel like an idiot for believing some things, it, it sort of chewed up a lot of my brain space. It doesn't anymore. I'm confident in it now, but th I just want to share a really nerdy little study that, I, that this reminded me of. And it's a really tedious, nerdy study that shouldn't be anything, but it, it's amazing what the conclusions come to. So I'm going to go a little bit off track here. So one of the criticisms is that people say that, you know, the Bible was written too long after the events happened. You know, it wasn't written down in real time. It was 30 or 50 years or after the events happened, something like that written by people who weren't eyewitnesses or they, you know, they probably got some details wrong, didn't really know what they're talking about, memory had faded, that kind of thing. And if, if that's the case, we can look at these stories and we can be critical of them. And we, can, we can look at what details did they get right? Did they know the places, the events, the dates? And a lot of those things match up really well, as many popular studies have, have shown, that they talked about the people who were in control at the time where it makes sense they were in control, the leaders of all these areas. But quite recently, um, 2013, there was this, as I mentioned, a really tedious study. A, a German historian did a study, and he published a book called The Tal Ilan Lexicon, Lexicon of Jewish Names in Antiquity, Part 1. Riveting title, right? Basically, he looked at Jewish names in different time periods and, and different locations. So he's looking at texts, letters, gravestones, engravings. Basically, anywhere there's a Jewish name, writes it down, where was it from, what time period. And so this isn't looking at famous people, this is everyday people. And then he drew all these sort of interesting reports on them. It's probably only interesting to like three people, but it, it, it's, a, it's a painful book to read. I, but basically it's, you know, the name Ephraim, I found it on this gravestone, I found it in this letter, all these things, very tedious. And then he would draw these reports, such as which had a biblical influence, a Greek influence, Latin influence, that kind of thing. And some of the overall stats, if you narrow it down for the area of Judea, it's quite interesting. 15.6% of men bore one of two of the most popular names, Simon or Joseph. It's pretty incredible, right? 15% of people have those two names of men. 41.5% of men bore one of the nine most popular male names, not particularly original. Only 7.9% of men bore a name that's attested only once in their sources. And for women, the stats were reasonably similar that you know, nearly a third of women bore the most two popular names, Mary and Salome. Nearly half of women had the same top nine female names, and 9.8% of women bore a name that was unique and only found once in their sources. So it wasn't particularly strange to have more than one Simon. And it wasn't until, like I said, it was a boring study, it wasn't until 2008, five years later, that after this was published, that another guy called Richard Balkin found this work, and he decided to compare those stats with 
all the names recorded in the Gospels and the Book of Acts. You know, what, what does the Bible use as, as names? What do the Gospel writers use? And interestingly, all of, these, all of those stats in the Bible were well, in a few percent of what the secular sources said. The secular sources said 41.5% of men, men had the, pop, the nine most popular names, and in the Bible it was about 40%, you know, very, very close with these stats. And, and that's not really much surprise to us who, who do believe the Bible is accurate, but it's, it's quite a conflicting thing. If, if you're a secular person saying they didn't know what they're talking about, it's a bit of a coincidence that they managed to get the percentage of names and the profiles to what they really were in the area. According to the academic study, the seven most popular names in Palestine or Judea at the first century was Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, John, Jesus, and Ananias. And they sound familiar to us, right? I was quite surprised that Jesus was such a popular name at the time. But, but those sound familiar to us as Bible readers. But what makes it interesting, if we looked at the seven most popular names in Egypt at the same time, just down the road, not far away at all, and this is Jewish names in the area, so there's a Jewish colony in Egypt at the time. So in Egypt, we've got Eleazar, Sabbateus, Joseph, Josephus, Pappus, Ptolemaeus, Samuel. There's a few similarities in there, but this should be half of the people in our Bible. If, if the writers were outside of the land, it would have a very different spread of names. So the top names in Judea in the, secu in the secular study match what we find in the Gospels and in Acts. Either the writers got things, we got very lucky, or they actually knew what they were talking about. It also explains why some of the names have a qualifier and others didn't. In Matthew chapter 10, this is introducing the 12 disciples, and he does it in a really interesting way that makes a lot more sense in light of that study. He's saying, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. So Simon, was that the pop most popular or second most popular name? Um, oh, number one, M most popular name. So his name gets given a clarification. He's Simon Peter or Simon Cephas, and he's the brother of Andrew. So you know what Simon he's talking about there. And you know what Andrew it is because it's Simon's brother. Then he says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. James is the fifth most popular name, so he needs a qualifier. What James are we talking about? Son of Zebedee. Philip, he says. Philip and Bartholomew. Philip is the number 61. No qualifier needed. There's not a million Philips running around. Bartholomew, 50. No qualifier needed. Says Thomas. No qualifier. He's not even in the top 100. He's a very unique name at the time. Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew comes in at number 9. Another popular name, so we need to specify what Matthew we're talking about. James, look, another James even in the 12 disciples. James, son of Alphaeus. He needs a qualifi qualifier as well, number 11. Thaddeus, he's just Thaddeus because he's not that popular, number 39. Simon, again, another Simon, number one. So he's Simon the Canaanian. And Judas is number four, so he's distinguished. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. That's quite interesting. I've, I've never noticed that when, when reading through it, that even the writers, when they're, they're trying to tell people, they're, they're using the way that they would actually do it at the time because there's so many Simons, so many James, they've got to actually tell it how you would say, say that Simon over there. Yeah, I didn't realize Jesus was such a popular name at the time. You know, number six in Judea in the first century, based, based on what we can find from letters and gravestones and things. Most of the time, the writers in the Bible just call him Jesus because we as readers, we're familiar with, he's been introduced to us as readers. We know that they're talking about this Jesus. But it's interesting, whenever they refer to Jesus to others who don't really know him, 
he's called Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene or Jesus son of Joseph. He's got those clarifiers there. It's a popular name, so it needed the clarification. And obviously after his death and resurrection in, in the epistles and in Acts, he's Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. But he hasn't earned that title in those early days, so he was identified the normal way he should be. So all of this just points to the fact that the writers of the New Testament did an incredible job at accurately recording what happened, you know, down to these tiny details. And this isn't the famous people or the rulers, this is the everyday guys on the street. It's not a surprise to us who believe the Bible, but if you're trying to prove that the Bible is historically unreliable, then these stats are quite awkward to reconcile. So it's a bit of a detour from our story, but I just thought I'd share this sort of weird nerdy thing with you. Um, I found it really encouraging. And, you know, when I see things like this, it helps give us confidence in the Bible, and it helps explain some of the things, some of the, what seems like a contradiction at the time. You know, dinner and perfume at Simon's house was that in Bethany or Galilee? Well, probably both. Forty percent of men in the, at that area were either called Simon or Joseph, so it's quite likely to find more than one Simon. It's not even a coincidence at that point; it's expected. If our Bible all had unique names, that would, that would be a red flag. But the fact that we've got so many duplicates in what we know in history, it makes sense. So here they are in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper. Again, he's got his clarifier there, Simon the leper. We assume that this is someone who has been healed from leprosy. If he still had leprosy, they wouldn't be hanging out in his house. And yeah, again, notice that's a different identifying detail than the Simon mentioned in Luke. That was Simon the Pharisee. Here we're at Simon the leper. So Mary comes along with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those who were present indignantly said to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. When John's retelling this story, he's specifically mentions that it was Judas who said that or who was extra critical and he throws a little dig in there saying that in fact Judas had no heart for the poor he only said this because he was a thief and in charge of the money case he would steal money whenever he wanted from the funds given to support Jesus' ministry so in the, in the Greek it says over 300 denarii which for us is helpfully translated as over a year's wages to give us an idea of what that was really worth. You know, this, they're pointing out this is an extravagant gesture that Mary has done here. And I've got to admit, I can, I can kind of see their point. Right? I don't know, if maybe I'm just stingy. Um, but that's, that's a lot of money that you can do a lot of good with that, right? And in normal circumstances, I think that that would be the right choice to sell it and use the money for something good. But what these people are missing is that the, these circumstances are not normal. Jesus knows what's happening behind the scenes. He knows he won't be with them much longer. And he's told them that. Clearly most of them don't understand that or don't want to believe it at this point. But Mary seems to be more aware of the real situation. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. She knew Jesus wouldn't be with them much longer, and she's choosing to do what she can to bless him, choosing to use what she has. And Jesus commends her for that. He says she has done a beautiful thing. 
you know, if, if these people, if they really understood what was happening, they wouldn't say, why, would, why did you waste something so valuable? They'd be saying, why did you do so little? Is, is, that, a, is that all you're doing for this guy? If they really understood the situation. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Graham mentioned, um, he raised the question, you know, if you knew you only had a week to live or a loved one, what would you do with that time? You know, you're not going to do boring, frivolous things. You're going to be extravagant. You're not going to be stingy. You're going to spend it on the things that matter most. Make memories and bless them. You won't always have me, Jesus says. And she did what she could. She is preparing my body for burial. So again, we see that Jesus is fully aware of what's coming. He doesn't get surprised by those planning to kill him. Instead, he patiently surrenders to God's will. And I think there's another important side note here. And it's quite interesting with what Sarah was saying just this morning in the notices. I think the disciples, in a, in a way, were right when they're out, they were outraged at what, what could have been done with that money. You know, a, a year's wages would have gone a long way to helping those in need. You know, Jesus points out that this extravagant act was a beautiful thing in these exceptional circumstances. You will always have the poor, but you won't always has, have me, he says. Yeah, but that implies that in normal circumstances, we are expected to look after the poor. You know, in no way is Jesus telling us that we should forget about the poor and do extravagant things for our friends and family all the time. This is an exceptional circumstance. So it's important that we stay in tune with God regarding our finances and our spending habits. You know, I think 99 times out of 100, if you saw someone wasting a year's worth of wages on perfume for one person, I think it's safe to assume that they're not in sync with God's heart. And maybe that's just me and I'm stingy and don't value perfume that much, but I think 99 times out of 100, that's not the right thing to do. In this situation, Mary was actually more in tune with God's heart than the others. She was much more aware of this incredible situation. Anointing the Son of God for his death and burial, that's a unique situation. I think if she owned a perfume shop and she had a hundred bottles or a thousand bottles, it still wouldn't have been enough for what this situation really deserves. So we've seen these two contrasting stories of preparing for the next step. So the outer story, Mark is telling us what the forces of evil were doing to prepare for the next phase. Plotting and arranging with Judas to arrest and kill Jesus, and then comparing it with what Jesus is doing to prepare for the next phase. He knows his death is coming soon, and he's not running for it. He's not fighting back. He's not setting an ambush or anything like that. That prayer that Jesus prays in the garden, he's saying, you know, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. You know, I'm sure that would have been on his mind for a long time before that one night. And here we see again Jesus surrendering to the Father's will. He knows his death is coming. What more could he do? And I'm sure he had many options. He could have run, he could have left, he could have fought, he could have endless options that he could have done that were in his power. But for him, the only thing left for him to do was to enjoy a meal with his friends and prepare his body for burial and ensuring that his death happens on his terms and in his timing to fill the prophetic symbolism of Passover. So it looks like the plans of the evil ones has prevailed but it was Jesus that was using their plans, forcing that inconvenient timing for them to be used as part of his master plan. And lastly, in that conversation at the dinner, Jesus says, 
Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are. That's pretty cool. 2,000 years later, we're talking about what this lady did for Jesus and how much she wasted on him. You know, the, the, the way that Mark weaves these two stories together also allows us to compare the value that each person seems to have placed on Jesus. Mary wasting this expensive perfume, valued at more than a year's wages. You know, and Judas, one of his closest followers, we, we're told he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and this converts to about four months of wages. For us, we're not, we're not really in the same position as Mary and Judas. You know, we're not part of his life on earth in the days leading up to his death. But we can still ask ourselves, how much do we value Jesus? How much are we willing to waste on him? And like from the wrong perspective, it is a waste, isn't it? Like if we counted up all the hours we volunteer at church, how much, how much time he spent reading the Bible, listening to sermons, praying, all that money you've given to church or to charity or helping people in need, if you wrote all that down on a piece of paper... I was thinking, if I wrote that down and showed my old colleague who was really critical of Christianity, he was a friend, but he, I could just picture he would be shaking his head and he'd say, what a waste. Like, you could have done so much. You could have so many toys. You could have whatever. You could live in a mansion. Maybe I haven't given that much. But you know what I mean? Like, what a waste. That's, that's the truth of the perspective if, if you don't know who Jesus is. But if you do know Jesus and if you do know what he's done for you, and what he's going to do, then, you know, that piece of paper that I'm showing that shows all the time and money I've spent on Jesus, that looks a bit pathetic, doesn't it? Like, it's, it's nothing. If I had a thousand lifetimes dedicated to serving him, that wouldn't be enough. And thankfully, he doesn't ask us to give what we owe because we could never pay that anyway. As we move into a time of communion, let's just remember all that Jesus has done for us. And I think, yeah, just in light of what Sarah said before, I think spend a bit of time in prayer and if you feel led to do so, ask God if there's something extravagant you, you can do you know, to get your heart in sync with his, something that you can waste some time or money on, something that you can align with God's will. Good, good kind of wasting, not the, yeah. Spend, yes, yes. So yeah, let's just pray that God would align our hearts with his show us how he would have us serve, how to spend our time and money, that our lives would be in sync with him.